0: If you have your Bibles, join me please in Mark chapter 14. Feeling a little bit spring-forwardy. Anybody else? Yeah, that's just awful, isn't it? I heard someone say we should not do it on Saturday. It's actually early Sunday morning that they do it, but we should do spring-forward on Friday at 4 o'clock. And that makes good sense to me. Just spring-forward is the end of the day and give everybody a head start. They do not think of pastors when they do spring forward. And I think the whole world, and I mean every inhabitant on the globe, should think solely of pastors. hmm Just one time this week, would you think of me? One time this week. Not today, this does not count. Mark chapter 14, I want to read a segment of verses that I genuinely believe contain one of the greatest tragedies within Scripture. It's painful to take in. In fact, we are going to be witness to one of the most shameful, and if I could use this term without cheapening the severity of it, one of the most embarrassing moments in an individual's life. Here in Mark chapter 14, I'll begin reading in verse 66, and as we get to this moment in time, Peter is near Jesus who has been arrested, and as Peter was beneath in the palace, there cometh one of the maids of the high priest. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked upon him and said, and thou also wast with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied, saying, I know not, neither understand I what thou sayest. And he went out into the porch, and the cock crew. And a maid saw him again, and began to say to them that stood by, this is one of them. And he denied it again. And a little after, they that stood by said again to Peter, surely thou art one of them. For thou art a Galilean, and thy speech agreeeth therein. But he began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not this man of whom ye speak. And the second time the cock crew. And Peter called to mind the word that Jesus said unto him, Before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. And when he thought thereon, he wept. In the early segment of verses that I read a moment ago, there was clearly a word that is emphasized, and it is the word again. We are watching Peter fail over and over again. And those verses that I shared contain a fulfilled prophecy. Jesus had predicted that this would happen, and it did happen just as Jesus Christ predicted it would. How would you like the entire world to read about your moment of intense failure? How would you like the whole world to be able to study Pick apart your tragic sin, which is in black and white for all ages to read about over and over again. Your hesitation or mine. Maybe our outright cowardice on the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ to be picked apart again and again and again. Before we really assassinate the character of Peter, I'd like to elevate it just a little bit so that we can become aware of the reality that this could be us. In fact, all of us that are here in this room this morning are Peter. Don't forget that Peter was willing to get out of the boat and in faith walk on the water to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was Peter who just a little before this moment in time was in the garden with Jesus. And when the centurion and the Romans came in, perhaps 600 of them, Peter leapt in front of Jesus and with only a blade in his hand took on probably 600 Roman guards. This is Peter, who by the way, even as we read this, Along with only one other disciple has come from the Garden of Gethsemane and at least followed Jesus to this place of his unjust, illegal trial where he waits in the courtyard. I remind you as well that we are looking into the mirror of the Word of God and the Apostle Peter in this story is all of us. So we must begin with the question, how in the world did someone like Peter end up doing this? How did someone who was willing to walk away from his livelihood and follow in pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ learning from him? How did this one who walked on the water and took on the high priest's servant and all the Romans there in the garden, how did this brave man get to the point where he denied Christ? Because he's just like us. Everyone is sinful by nature. We as Christians understand, those of us that have been saved, born again, redeemed, have been given a new nature, the Bible teaches us that we are new creatures in Christ. But that does not free us from this body of death, the scripture tells us. We must understand that we are also still intensely human. We are locked into this human fallen flesh. If I were to borrow from the words of Paul in Romans chapter 7, he says this, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. But for I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And you're thinking to yourself, why did you even take me there? This is unbelievably confusing scripture. Let me sum it up as he did in the next verse. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of this death? All of us, according to scripture, are wretched individuals. Every time that I convene with the church and I am under the pressure, the responsibility to communicate the truth of the word of God, one of the greatest challenges that I face in a setting like this is helping you and I to understand that we are in need of what the scripture is teaching. We tend to be very impressed with ourselves. We are, for lack of a better description, good people. If we were to look around the world, we are better than most of the world and a poison enters into the stream of our minds and we see ourselves as not needing anything that the scripture says. We ooze with self-confidence. We trust our own gut. We go with our, what we deem to be righteous instinct. After all, you can't be any further to the right of right than we are. We are all aware of the fact that no matter how good we think we are and how many external boxes we may be checking, the fact is we are caged in a body of death and we are wretched and there is an unending spiritual warfare going on inside of us. We have to be honest about it. We have to be forthright about it, even the good ones. And we have to be aware that we cannot depend on ourselves. We cannot trust in our own flesh. Or we run the risk of having the exact experience that Peter did. The danger of self-confidence. That was Peter's failure. And we need to learn that as well. We've been studying over these weeks the necessity of prayer. We've been coming to terms with the fact that we as everyday Christians are not praying as we should. And the fact is, if we understand that prayer, as we have studied it, is a declaration of our dependence upon God, then we must also come to the conclusion that prayerlessness is a declaration of our independence from God. Prayerlessness in our lives indicates that we are confident in our wretched selves. Prayerlessness means I do not need your input, I do not need your wisdom, I do not need your protection, I've got this. And this story before us decimates that line of thinking. Peter's failure teaches us some unforgettable lessons, I'm going to bounce around just a little to tell you this Bible story within the gospel accounts. Matthew writes this in Matthew 26 and verse 69. Now Peter sat without in the palace, and a damsel came unto him, saying, Thou also wast with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. A damsel, that's what Matthew says. If I say to you the word damsel, I would imagine that two words immediately come to mind and they would be a damsel in distress. There is nothing about this maid, that's what Mark calls her, this damsel, this young girl, there is nothing about her that is physically intimidating. This is a damsel. This is a servant girl. This is a maid in the courtyard. Now I want you to imagine just for a moment that just perhaps a little more than an hour or so prior, Peter was in the garden of Gethsemane with Jesus Christ. In the garden, as Judas comes up the hillside or down the stairs with the torches lit of all of the high priest's servants and all of the Roman guard, Peter, as I have already referenced, leaps in front of Jesus Christ, armed only with a small blade, and hacks off the ear of Malchus. He's fearless. He's bold. He's impetuous. He's brave. He's carnal. Make no mistake about it. But he is certainly not a coward, and yet here in this moment, in front of a small damsel, he denies Jesus Christ. He promised Jesus that he would die with him. I think that if Jesus, and this is merely my opinion, I suspect that if Jesus, who could see Peter, and we'll learn that in just a moment had raised his voice and called for Peter to come in from the courtyard outside the palace and come into where Jesus was being questioned and spit upon and mocked and beaten and said, Peter, testify on my behalf. I happen to believe that Peter would have mustered the strength and the bravery to testify on behalf of Jesus. But in the courtyard, a little damsel is able to break him down and he denies Christ. He was blindsided from a source he had never expected. He expected soldiers. He expected an unjust trial. He expected the Sanhedrin to be unfair to the Lord Jesus Christ, but not this little damsel. He whimpers pathetically as he denies Christ. And one commentator said, being courageous in big battles does not guarantee victory in little ones. What a precedent this should set for us spiritually speaking. Most of us that are gathered in this room this morning are here with the intent of honoring God with our lives. We begin this day with a noble pursuit. We want to please God. I would say that most of us that are gathered in this room are on guard for the cataclysmic, life-changing, path-altering temptations that would come to us, and we could stand against them. But perhaps we are unaware of all of the little tiny daily grind temptations that creep into our path where we capitulate to our flesh, thus altering the paths of our lives most of the time without ever being aware of it. How tragic it is that we are on guard for the big attacks, but in the daily life grind, we are giving into our flesh and changing our existence perhaps without knowing it. Peter was on guard for the soldiers. But he capitulates. And I believe it's not the cataclysmic things that take us down, but it's the daily grind that wears us out. After the damsel, Matthew says in verse 71 that a maid comes. And Peter putting a little more distance, walks out onto the porch. And another maid saw him and said unto them that were there. Now the damsel speaks to Peter. She comes unto him and says, you were with Jesus. And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. Now he steps out onto the porch and there's another servant girl there. There is a maid that is there. And she now speaks aloud, not only to Peter, but to those that were gathered there. And she says, this fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. You could understand that to be, I swear, I don't know him. I promise I don't know him. Peter's not using vulgarity here. This is a way of him adding reinforcement to what he's saying. It's him saying, honestly, we might know this as putting our hand on the Bible and saying, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I promise you, that's what Peter is doing. On my word of honor, I don't know the man. On my word of honor, I am not one of his disciples. The tragedy is probably everybody there in the courtyard knew that he was. Peter wasn't a stranger to Jerusalem at this point. In fact, the very steps that led from this house down into the garden of Gethsemane Jesus and the disciples had traversed, ascended and descended before. Peter was in the temple courtyard with Jesus Peter had been there in and around where the miracles were. No one there was confused as to who he was, yet he openly lies. And when he should have just told the truth, he digs the hole a little deeper. What's interesting to me as a student of the Bible is that Jesus had already predicted within the upper room that none of his disciples would be harmed with him. I mean, maybe Peter would have been kicked out of the courtyard. Perhaps he would have been made fun of or mocked as Jesus was being mocked. Maybe they'd have picked up a stone and chased him away. Maybe he would have had to deal with a little bit of shame and embarrassment. But he wasn't even willing to do that. Sometimes we think disassociation from Jesus Christ will bring us safety. When in fact disassociation from Jesus Christ puts us in extreme spiritual danger. What Peter is giving evidence of here is that he is not navigating this situation with the strength of God. He is not navigating this situation with any discernment at all, in any way wise. He's simply protecting himself and he's making a grievous mistake. And now we'll skip to John's account. John 18 verse 26 says this, one of the servants of the high priest. Being his kinsman whose ear Peter cut off, saith, did not I see thee in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately the cock crew. Now, if we are working this story like we are a prosecuting attorney, we are bringing evidence, we are bringing witnesses before the jury. One is a damsel who says to him in person, hey, I saw you with Jesus. I don't know what you're talking about. Get out of that pressure, step out onto the porch, and there's another maid that is out there. She says aloud with an earshot of some big scary people, Hey, he's also on team Jesus. I promise you, on my word of honor, I don't know the man. Come on. Now the Bible says we're bringing our star witness Peter was in the garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, I've referenced it. He leaps up and with his dagger he lops off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Now I would tend to imagine that Malchus has not been silent about this moment. This is a memorable event. I don't know if you've been around when someone has had an appendage lopped off, I would remember it. I would venture to say you would remember it. Not only does he have his ear lopped off, in a moment, Jesus bends down and picks up Malchus's bloody, gross, cartilagey, is that a word? Ear. And puts it back on Malchus's head and reattaches it and drops his hand and his ear is back and it works. Now, I happen to believe that as they walked out of the garden, Malchus was a different man than the one that went into the garden. And this is a relative of Malchus, and I think they were whispering, did you see that? Did I see that? It was my ear. Does it work? It works. I bet it didn't even have wax in it. I mean, Jesus just put it on there. That dude was pristine. Did he use stitches? No stitches. Did it too fast. Staples? No staples. Gorilla glue? Didn't see it. I'm checking. It's on there. It works. That was nuts. Who's the guy that cut it off? Jerk. I don't know where he came from. Leapt out, whacked my ear off. That guy put my ear back. Now, here's what I'm saying. In now the courtyard, one of Malchus's relatives, who would have very vividly remembered this moment, steps up and says, yep, that's you no doubt about it you had a blade that one right there in your belt the one with uh, malchus's blood still on it it was you you hacked off malchus's ear no doubt about it you were so with jesus that you attacked us when we came to get him and peter audaciously denies again and says nope i've never seen the man You ever realize how stupid we look when we sin? How dumb and dim-witted we are when we are doing wrong? Case is closed. Peter, we've got you at the scene, man. If it had existed, we have got DNA evidence right there on your blade. We've got hundreds of people who can put you on the scene. You are there with him. And if Peter would have just told the truth, all right, I was there. I don't think anything would have happened. But instead he chose to deny it again. It was his strongest denial yet. And we jump from John's account back to Matthew's. And Matthew says, Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. And immediately the cock crew a curse there literally means Peter was saying I'm telling you the truth and if I'm not may God kill me here and now okay really dumb thing to say Peter because that could actually happen I'm not certain in this moment that Peter isn't saying may God take my life if I'm not telling you the truth if perhaps in this moment under this pressure And this duress, he didn't mean it. Just take me out of here. Peter has denied again and again and again. Pause for just a moment. And take in the whole scene. Jesus is within earshot of Peter. Peter. Peter has been able to hear the inquisition going on. Jesus is in the room and at this point he has been slapped, he has been mocked, he has been spit upon and he has been beaten. And Jesus told nothing but the truth, an honest recounting of who he was, what he was doing there. Peter is out in the courtyard, lying through his teeth, trying to save his life. This is an extreme picture of the spirit versus the flesh. Can you see in the room the Lamb of God rejected by the world? He has just been betrayed by one of his followers. Now he is being denied by one of his only friends on the face of the earth. A friend who had earlier vowed to remain faithful. I jump to Luke's account. Because in Luke's account, I think we read perhaps one of the most extravagantly painful verses in all of the Bible. And I wish I had the verbal ammunition to paint a clear enough picture of this. But Luke says, as Peter said, Man... I know not what thou sayest. And immediately while he yet spake the cock crew. And in verse 61 we read this. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. He stood silent while all others mocked him. With perhaps at this point a bloody and bruised face. And he turns and looks through an opening. And at the same time the Bible tells us Peter catches his eye and notes that Jesus, the Lamb of God, was looking directly at him. How unbelievably painful that must have been. Peter, who walked with swagger, in that moment is completely shattered. When we read the Bible, we are oftentimes struck with the reality that Jesus pays attention. It stands out to me that we'll talk about the widow with the two mites as she gives her meager little offering. But we overlook the fact that Jesus was sitting in the temple treasury watching people give their offering. And when the little widow woman with the two mites walked up to drop them in, he got his disciples' attention and he said, Hey, 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 boys, look at this one. Look at this And he watched her give. And Jesus assessed the situation and said, she's given more than anybody else. And the disciples who think like us are scratching their heads and thinking, what? Jesus watches. Jesus pays attention. And in this moment, Peter, thinking he's denying for free, Peter thinking he is escaping association with Jesus, Peter thinking he is salvaging his reputation, and he's changing the arc of his plans for the future because, after all, this ship has clearly sailed, and he thinks Jesus isn't paying attention until Jesus looks him square in the eye and in a way communicates to him, I've heard all three. Like a blade in my heart, I've felt all three. Why do we think that the Lord Jesus doesn't see our failure? How have we convinced ourselves that he has turned a blind eye to our rebellion and our sin and our prayerlessness? Why have we convinced ourselves that he is ignorant of all of our faults? He sees And he knows, I can't imagine, but I know this I've given ample reason for Jesus to look at me the same way. Ample, countless reason for Jesus to look at me and say, Chris, I saw that. Chris, I heard that. I'm aware of that. I'm watching that. I see you. I've given him reason over and again. And Luke wraps up his account by saying, And Peter went out and wept bitterly. It literally means he sobbed uncontrollably. He failed. He sobbed uncontrollably. I'm talking to good people. I'm talking to people who are better than the rest. It is a cut above average. We walk with self-confidence oozing from our pores. We go with our gut. We, we lean on our instinct. And yet the Bible says that our heart is desperately wicked. It's so deceitful. You can't even navigate or understand your own heart. We're dictated by our emotions. We should be praying and we choose not to pray. And we think when we get to heaven... We're going to simply hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, because after all, look at us. We're checking every external box you can possibly check, and it salves our conscience. And we all know when we get to heaven, there will be no tears in heaven. Nobody cries in heaven except the Bible tells us that he wipes away all our tears. Which indicates to me that there are going to be individuals like you and people just like me, and I don't mean just like me, I mean me, who when we arrive in heaven will not be walking in with a swagger. Will not be walking in with our chin up and our head held high, but when we meet the eyes of our beloved Savior Jesus who shed his blood to pay debt that we could not pay, when we look at him and we see the scars, I think we will be reminded in a moment that we have squandered a lot of this existence. And there's gonna be a whole lot of people who have a swagger here and ooze with self-confidence and think that they can depend on their own gut and their own instinct and their own experience and their own intellect, and they're gonna get there and they're gonna say, whoa, I did not realize how miserably I wrecked it. I failed, and he will have to wipe away tears of people who were so strong and dependent on themselves, so righteous. I mean, after all, you can't get any further to the right. Look at us. Look at my tie knot. See my Bible. I'm against everything in the world. I'm a Baptist. I mean, our our default setting is like, we're probably against it. Like, I don't know, we're feeding poor people. Yeah, but what are we feeding the poor people? We've got to be careful about associations. Yeah, I mean, we're just trying to help refugees, but where are we sending the refugees? We're Baptists. We cross every T and dot every I. You need to look at my Bible. This is my preaching Bible. There's no notes. I have people show me their notes. Look at the notes in my Bible. Do you see how many notes I take, but can you read them? I mean, we're against everything. I, I have my sermon. Look, these are, look, this is just to prove that I do something through the week. People think I just golf. This is, I work. But I've used pink highlighter, and someone out there is against that. They're thinking, ah, we may be looking for a church next week. He's used pink highlighter. We know that that, that can't be right. It's somewhere in the Scriptures. We're against everything. The devil loves for us to focus on externals because when we are focused on externals, we've got our eye off the ball. We're not looking where we should be looking and we are easy marks in the spiritual struggle because we're so convinced of our own righteousness. What was Peter's failure ultimately? I've got to get to the root of this. The night before in the upper room, from sunset to midnight, Jesus looked at the disciples and as recorded in Matthew 26, he predicted, you all will abandon me. Let's listen in. Matthew 26:31. Then saith Jesus unto them, all ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. Peter's response is two verses later. Listen to Peter in verse 33. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Can you hear the self-confidence oozing from him? Peter now has the moment changed as Jesus pivots and looks directly at Peter and he says, Simon... Simon is not good now when people use your full name. It wasn't good then when people said your name twice. And Jesus said, Simon, Simon, I hear your self-confidence, but I know something you don't know Satan hath desired to have you, that's the Bible's language, that he may sift you as wheat. In essence, he's come and he has asked for permission to come at you like he went at Job. Simon, Satan is coming directly after you in Matthew's account. Directly after the the communication of general abandonment by Jesus Jesus says in verse 34, Verily I say unto thee, Peter, that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Three times. Peter, I'm telling you, the sheep are going to scatter, but you are going to deny me completely. And Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. And before we're too hard on Peter, likewise also said all the disciples. Even the ones you don't know, like Bartholomew and Philip, they all said it too. We're not going anywhere. Look at team Jesus right here gathered in this room. We're tough ones. We're not going anywhere. You won't find a weak link in this chain. And then the Lord singles Peter out and says, oh, by the way, you oozing with self-confidence, walk on water, swing your dagger, talk out loud, you, you will deny me completely. Nope! I'll die with you. Can you imagine the audacity of Peter arguing with the only begotten Son of God? Mark even says to us, but he spake the more vehemently, if I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise... Peter was insistent, Peter was arguing, Peter was repeating, Jesus, on everything I've ever been around you concerning, you've been on the right side, you're missing on this one. You're wrong, I'm not going to deny you. Of course, earlier when Jesus was beginning to speak of being arrested and, and the crucifixion, Peter said to Jesus, hey, come here. Don't talk like that in front of the guys. And Jesus looked at him and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. You are not savoring the things that are of my Father in heaven. Peter was always going back and forth. He was always so impressed with his intellect and his gut. He was so impetuous. He was so emotionally driven. He was so sure of himself. That at no point did he ever imagine this would happen. Peter is arguing with the living, breathing word of God. John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And in John chapter one, we're told the word became flesh and dwelt among men. He's arguing with God himself. He's arguing with the living word of God. It is no different when you and I argue with the completely inerrant, finished word of God in our lives. We're arguing with the Lord I don't need to do that my life doesn't have to look like that it doesn't have to take this shape it doesn't have to take this size it doesn't have to have this hue of color I have figured out a path that works for me I'm sorry we don't have that flexibility in our pursuit of holiness we only have his devised and dictated path but we're so sure of ourselves his failure wasn't willingness he was willing His failure wasn't bravery. We saw him swing his sword in the garden. But Peter's motto probably could have been, I'll do it my way. I'll do it my way. We saw it. Jesus says, pray, Peter sleeps. Jesus said, they're here to arrest me. Peter says, no, I'll fight. Jesus said, I've got to go to the cross. Peter said, don't talk like that. Jesus said, I'm going to wash your feet. Peter said, not mine. Not mine. Jesus said, you'll deny me. Peter said, wrong. I'll never deny you. In fact, I will die with you. If ever there was a disciple who thought he could make it on his own and do it his way, it was Peter. He had willpower. He had courage. He was aggressive. He was strong. He was committed. He was a natural born leader. He esteemed himself and in that he failed. To find the root of his failure in testing, we leave the upper room and we find him in the garden where Jesus looks him in the face and says, you're going to deny me. And then he says, pray ye that ye enter not into temptation. Peter, temptation is coming for you and I'm saying to you, you must pray so that temptation won't catch you unawares. Here's what Jesus said to him as he found them sleeping. He said, couldst thou... Not watch one hour. Watch ye and pray lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. Peter, I know what you think you can handle. I know on the inside you're telling yourself, you've got this. You're smart enough. You're wise enough. You're working hard enough. You're separated enough. I know what you are convincing yourself, but I'm telling you, your flesh is weak. Pray. Or else you are going to falter when the heat is turned up. I imagine as Jesus walked back away and collapses in the garden under the weight of the bitter cup that he would soon drink, Peter and James and John must have looked at each other and said, didn't he hear us? We already told him we're not going to deny him. Didn't he hear us? We already told him. We're going to go with him all the way to the finish line. Though everybody else walk away, we won't. Didn't he hear us? And they go back to sleep. It's interesting to me that Jesus is drawing a line. He is saying there's a direct relationship between prayer and purity. Between praying and spiritual prosperity. He's implying there's a direct cause and effect between prayerlessness and spiritual collapse. It is interesting to me that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying earnestly and fervently to his Father, and when the heat is turned up, Jesus is telling the truth, and he's handling with grace, and he's submissive to the will of his Father. Peter is in the confidence of the flesh, sleeping instead of praying, and when the heat is turned up, he can't do one thing right. Everything he does is the wrong thing because it's the thing he thinks should be done. So while Peter should have been praying about to enter the darkest hour of temptation, he slept. That's why I believe he writes with passion in 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Be on the constant serious lookout for the enemy. Stay awake. The devil's great hope is that he will be ignored that he will be laughed off, that he will be lightly esteemed, so be sober. Which is why we, of all people, are in danger, because we are so convinced of our own righteousness. Just ask us. We're so self-righteous. We are so pretentious. We are so full of ourselves. We ooze with self-confidence. He may get those people out there. He'll never get us. Wrong. There isn't a superman or a superwoman in here. I love the story. In the heyday of Muhammad Ali's career, he was seated on a 747, and that must have been quite a magnificent moment. They tell me flying used to be a great thing. Everybody used to get dressed up, and everybody wanted You didn't have to wear masks, which sounds really great. But the thing is, everything you tell me about the old days, I'm like, but everybody on the plane smoked. And that's Gross. So you're wearing a suit coat that smells like cigarettes and the curtains are yellow and the teeth are gross. There's a hundred things I want no part of. Muhammad Ali was on a plane. All of that was just free. That's just insight into my mind. That's what goes on up here. Muhammad Ali, as the plane was taxiing, a flight attendant walked up and said, uh, Mr. Ali, I'm going to need you to buckle your seatbelt before we take off. And he looked at her and he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. She looked back at him and said, Superman don't need a plane either. (laughs) Buckle your seatbelt. What I'm saying is what Peter needed to hear in the garden. Hey, you're not Superman. Hey, buckle up. I don't care how separated you are. I don't care what stage of life you're in. I don't care that your tie knot is perfect and your shirt is pressed and your Bible's tucked under your arm or that you're sitting here. I don't care that you're trying really hard. I don't care how much instinct or experience or intellect you have. I don't care how much success you've got. I'm telling you, you better be sober and you better be vigilant because the devil's greatest asset is you to lightly esteem him or ignore him wrapped up in all the external boxes that you're checking and he will snipe you and you won't even know it's coming. And then he says to him, resist him. Don't be fooled by your own pride. Listen, pride goeth before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. Resist him steadfast. Why pray? So that I can resist steadfast. Unless, of course, you've got this on your own. You can handle the devil. You can handle tomorrow's temptation. You've got this on your own. Of course, that's foolish. Our failure thanks be to the grace of God is forgivable. I love that the Bible tells us this in Mark chapter 16, verse seven, when the women come to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus, Jesus says to them, but go your way, tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee, there you shall see him as he said unto you. In other words, gather all the disciples who abandoned me, gather all the quitters, gather everybody that bailed And Peter, because if there was one that was going to say, well, I'm not going, Jesus doesn't want me on his team, he said, and Peter. Now, we all know that in the garden, Peter pulled the dagger out and he lopped off Malchus's ear, and we all see him ostentatiously walking around the courtyard, cursing and swearing oaths and denying Jesus. Do any of us think that Peter wanted to go to this meeting when the women said, hey, Jesus wants to see you? Ooh, I have, a, I have a meeting in the marketplace today. If we could put that meeting off. If we could just hold off. Jesus wants to see you. Do you think that Peter strolled in where Jesus was? You wanted to see me? Is this where we get our trophies? Is this where the medals get put on our neck? Is that, is that what this is about? Or do you think Peter went in already crying? Because that's what I think. I don't think there was a bit of swagger in Peter. I don't think there was swagger in any of them. In fact, all of them are seated in the upper room. At one point, Jesus enters the room without opening the door, which is pretty cool. And he says, hey, don't be afraid. It's me, I'm here. Peter goes into that moment, and I'm telling you, we think the Lord is ignorant. That's our moment before him. There isn't one of us that's gonna enter heaven with a swagger. Not one of us is going in there thinking, well, I'm home. I'm home, go ahead and strike up the band. I've done it all. I've done everything I could. Every one of us will have a head to the ground, shuffling our feet, hoping to hear well done. Peter gets a second chance and it's awesome. Peter, denier Peter, is going to preach on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people are going to be saved. That's awesome. He's going to be one of the pastors of the church at Jerusalem. They're going to get Peter, this same group of people that beat Jesus. They're going to get Peter and John. They're going to bring him in off of Solomon's porch. And they're going to say, hey, don't you talk about Jesus of Nazareth anymore. And Peter looks at them and he says, I got to obey God. Walks right back out onto Solomon's porch and he starts preaching the gospel again. They go get him again. This time they bring him in and they put him in jail for the night they beat them. They put them in jail. An angel comes and lets them out of jail, and the angel says, hey, the Lord wants you to go back and preach on Solomon's porch. Now listen, I'd like to think that I'm brave, but if I have been twice arrested in Charlotte for preaching downtown, and the Lord said, go do it again, I'm going to say, Lord, we should, we should have a cup of coffee over this. <laughs> this is getting out of hand. You are asking quite a bit of me, but not Peter. He goes right back to Solomon's porch and he rips that message again and then he writes a letter to all the scattered believers and they throw him in jail and they beat him and he doesn't quit. And one day, one day, they will fulfill what he said he would do for Jesus. They will take his life. But when Peter's life is poured out like a drink offering, he gets to heaven and listen, I don't mean he walked in on that side with a swagger. He still walks in with his head down saying, thank God your grace is going to allow me into this place. But in that moment, I do believe the Lord. Lord looks at him and says, well done. Well done. I know you went with your gut and fell flat on your face, but son, when you got another chance, dude, by my grace, you did it. And I want you to get this. There isn't one person in here, I don't care how separated or righteous or holy you are. I don't care if you're against pink highlighter. Actually, I do. That makes you really weird. But I don't care if you're against pink highlighter and everything else that's under the sun. What I'm telling you is if you think you can get through this life without praying on your wisdom, on your intellect, and on your experience, you are in spiritual danger. Collapse awaits, and it's expensive and painful to fail the Lord. Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment?